Hi guys, welcome to yet another session for IDA Summit Initiative by the Architects Diary, sponsored by Insul Pro and Bromic Heating. Our venue is designed by Manticore Designs. Our next speaker is architect Suhasini Ayer. She is the founder of Oroville Center for Scientific Research Trust, a collaborative organization with multiple agents and agencies working in the area of applied research in sustainable settlement planning solar passive architecture, appropriate building materials and technology, waste and water management, and renewable energy. She heads the Audible Design Consultants, a planning and architectural design studio focused on planning, designing, and implementing applied research development projects within Audible to field test the innovations and research carried by CSR and other organizations within Audible. Today, she is going to throw some light upon the needs of restricting the role of an architect for a post-pandemic extreme climate world. Let's hear about this amazing session. Now, I would like to hand over the screen to architect Suhasini. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I think it's past noon. Okay, uh, thank you so much for inviting me, IIDA. And what I would like to talk about is actually based on the theme that IIDA has come up this year, which is foyer to the future. And what is it the future that we are looking at? So I'm going to start screen sharing now. And my talk is a series of questions to see to actually evaluate where we are. So I start now, thank you. So the subject of the summit is the foyer to the future. And when I think about the future, I'm thinking about what is it that we as architects have as a role in the future. And then I realized we need to re-script the role that we have in the present if we want to respond to a world in crisis. It cannot be business as usual. So before rescripting our role, we need to find out where we stand. That means what is it that we were in the past and what is it that we are in the present? So looking at that, I went kind of like step by step. I said, who are the patrons of architects in India? I mean, as architects, unlike artists, or poets, we need to have patrons. We cannot just say, okay, I have a nice idea for a building, and then we just go out and build it. Without a patron, an architect cannot actually express his or ideas. So if we do have patrons, that means we are designing for them. So who are these people that we are designing for? So I looked at a very simple model, which is saying, okay, you know, about 93% uh, um, of Indians are earning less than $10,000. These are figures from 2017. So evidently, they are not using architects to build for them. So who are the people that we are building for? And I realize it is a 0.47% of the Indian population that lies between, you know, the wealth between 100,000 to 50 million euros, uh, a million dollars. This is the minuscule population of this country who are our patrons. Because the people who are very much higher up, they are not patronizing Indian architects. They go out and shop for international architects. So if we are only dealing with such a small section of the population as our patrons, not only to express ideas of design, but also to express ideas of how we see the future, how we want to look at working with the future, then we really need to be very effective because it has to have a trickle-down effect. So then we have to look at what is it that preoccupies us. Because if you want to tell people what is it that we want to do, first we have to find out what preoccupies us? What is our concerns? And who is validating us? In a way, you know, whatever somebody does, we are always looking for an audience, even in simple conversations within families, within a society. 
there is an audience who validates us. Who is this audience that validates us as an architect? So then, let's start really, I'm going to be really very, very basic and not get into profound semantics with metaphors and other things. I notice that most of the time, the first concern that most architects have when they set up a practice is, are we going to be economically sustainable? Can we pay the salaries? Can we pay the rent? Can we run the office? So our first concern when people set up practice or set up a join a practice is economic sustainability. Then at a certain point when that is kind of settled, the second concern most architects have is recognition from the peer group. They want other architects from the brotherhood of architects to say, yes, what you're doing is worthwhile. Yes, what you're designing has a certain sense. This peer, peer pressure of actually playing to an audience of other architects is so prevalent. I mean, I have a practice now since almost 30 years. Most of the seminars, talks, and now webinars with the pandemic time, when you look at who is the audience, even today, of what I'm talking, it's other architects. It's not people who are in politics or in business or in education or in healthcare who are actually signing up to these webinars where architects talk. It's always, we are talking to each other. We are like in an echo chamber. We design for approval from each other. We talk to each other. We have summits that only architects sign up for to listen to other architects. Why is it so? Are we such a, uh, how do you say, incomprehensible group to the society that they don't even understand what we do what is our concerns and how it affects them. And if it's so, we need to ponder about this because we cannot have a role in the future if we do not understand why we don't have a role in the present. And what often happens is that in the third stage, if you look at it like a development of a human being, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, like the childhood in an architect after the finish their studies is a sustainable practice and an adolescence is looking for approval from the peer group. And then finally, some of them who reach adulthood, they want celebrityhood. They want to be awarded, recognized, photographed, written about in magazines, where it's not about design, but it's about an individual who has achieved celebrityhood. If this is the present game plan that we are into, how is it that we can move to the next step, which is the future? Now, to be able to have any kind of leverage or voice, because architecture for me is much more than design. It's actually a kind of tool that shapes society, that shapes culture, that borrows from the diversity of various cultures to you know, have a say in the future, like painters, poets, artists, but also sociologists, economists, and others have as much say in architecture. But in India, does architecture have any leverage of voice as a vehicle of sociopolitical change? How many of us actually read architects who are intervening in the sociopolitical stage of this country and are being heard? Or forget about that. What is the value of design in post-reform India? If you do not understand the term post-reform India, to say it in a very short form is that till the 1990s, India was a socialist country with the public sector taking the lead in everything. Post-reform, the private sector started to have a higher uh, say in the stage. And most of the people who are actually now listening into what I'm saying are born post-reform India. And they do not have a direct experience of what it was to live in a socialist India. And what is the value of design in post-reform India where urban middle class have disposable income? That means they follow 
fashion seasons, which are not more than six to eight weeks, where they can buy online furniture and products that are designed by international corporate sectors who are engaged designers. But what about designers in the country? How are they actually influencing design? And what is the value of their design in post-reform India? And if I look only at architects, what is it that we are doing? If you look in terms of education, and this is only to deal with the field of where we intervene in society, education and skills. Now, the unorganized or the informal sector of employment in the country actually employs 92% of the 487 million people who are at the employable age. And 50% of them are in the construction industry. And I don't need to tell you what these people look like. All of you have been exposed to it. When the first lockdown happened almost a year ago, little more than a year ago, the faces of the people who were walking across the roads of this country over a month trying to get back home, these are the people who actually build the marvelous designs that we make on paper and computer that are being financed and promoted by developers and clients. Are we actually engaged in skill development? No. Are we engaged in upgrading their skill? No. Are we engaged in providing a meaningful and dignified employment? No. Now, going to the second point, I assume, and I may be wrong, that most of the listeners today are all urban. And urbanization in India of the 1.2 million Indians, only 377 of us, millions of us, live in urban areas, which is one third of the population. So only one in three people in India live in towns. And I'm not talking about metros like Bangalore, Chennai, Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, or whatever. And I'm not even talking about first grade cities, even small third tier cities, counting everything, small towns, everybody. Only one third of Indians live in urban India, while the UN and all other bodies keep talking about how the 21st century is a century of urban dwellers that more than 50% of the world's population is already living in it. And by 2050, more than 70% of the world's population will be living in towns and cities. But India is not the same. And unfortunately, out of the 377 million people living in urban India, 65 million live in slums and unauthorized settlements. I mean, it varies across the cities, but on an average, if you take all the cities and towns together, one in six person is living in an unauthorized settlement today in this country. So we as architects, when we talk about shelter, habitat, sustainability, building design, you know, climate, uh, climate sciences, we are actually only talking about the other five. And out of the other five, only 0.5 of the other five who actually engages architects. Then looking at environmental performance index when you come to health. Buildings have a huge impact on the health of the society. And today, our environmental performance index, taking especially urban India, we rank 168 out of 180. Not a very great ranking. We are not even in the first 100. We are not even in the first 150. We are at the bottom of the ranking. That means urban environment in which we are practicing is actually very, very unhealthy. And on top of it, now we have to do green buildings that meet a certain health standards. So where are we intervening in terms of the economics of it, the politics of it, the policies of it, are architects involved somewhere with it? I search all over as to just have a dialogue, and I don't find many people from the architectural fraternity who are actually involved. I can count out of the fingers of my hands number of architects who are really involved in having a dialogue with the government or the private sector when it comes to any of these three things that I've talked about. The last one, two are water and sanitation. 
Forget about, you know, water for construction. There's no clean water to supply to 20% of the population of this country. And the official figures in this country say one thing about access to toilets and sanitation, but the ground situation is very, very different. So different that it is not even listed anywhere because everybody knows it's different. So why say the obvious? Now, last point is, of course, the housing shortage. Urban India, 2019. The official figures from the TIO was there's 10 million units shortage. And this shortage is mostly in the economically weaker section and the lower income group segment. And frankly, I go on to be jury member or you know, external advisor to students of architecture in some of the schools of architecture in and around in Tamil Nadu. I have yet to find a design studio during housing or settlement planning that actually takes up EWS housing or lower income group housing as a design studio problem. It's either heritage and conservation or, you know, housing on hillside, housing on seaside, housing in, you know, metros, but it's never EWS or LIG segment. But actually, this is the section of population that needs design input for efficiency, sustainability, decarbonization, and healthy life, livelihood. But neither in the academia nor in the profession, there is much thought process that goes into this need. <coughs> Meanwhile, the government is trying to say, we will have 25 million homeless in these two sections by 2030, which is not far, which is nine years away. It's most probably when most of you who are listening to this webinar will be in the peak of your practice. So how does a society we serve and value our role in planning and design, given all these questions? And how is quality of design evaluated in the classroom, in the profession, or by society? Because we can have a say only if you have a certain value. If you're somebody who just drops in chats and cracks a few jokes and leaves, your friends are not going to say, oh, great, that's somebody I can rely on. That's somebody I should consult. That's somebody's opinion that matters. Okay. In our personal life, we are able to network. We build up relationships. We actually serve the small group of friends and families and others by bringing value to the table because of who we are. But as architects, what is our value? in the planning and design of this country, in the people that we build for. And if you look at my earlier slide where I said we are actually serving such a minor percentile of the population and the population that has actually wealth, are they actually allowing us through their patronage to help us to come up with solutions that makes sense, that has validity, that has relevance to the society we live in. No. A lot of us as architects, when we start our practice, if you're not employed and if you're self-employed, start with building and designing houses. We end up actually being something of enabler. I are getting people to do their two BHKs and three BHKs and their family living room and the public living room and things like that. So how do we end up there? What, how is the quality of design evaluated? Because I see in classrooms through, during juries and external juries that it is a formal part of design that is always looked at by the student and by the architect who are evaluating them. They're not looking at the social, political and economic aspect. They're not looking at sustainability in other aspects, except as a formal situation. And within the profession, we all see that the magazines and webinars and everything is very much focused on the formal aspect. Does it look good in photos? 
basically it comes down to that is it looking good in photos how many awards will the photos get and how can i promote myself so in the end of that what is the value to the society that we are working for they're not interested in photos they cannot take a photo and put it over their head and say yes that's make a good roof during the monsoon and just looking at how it is if you put the architect in the center and look at all the interactions agencies that we have to work with that we have to negotiate with that we have to try to influence where do we stand you know in the program brief very often i look at the program brief like even take for example the present controversial project which is the main axis of delhi who framed the program brief based on what were the architects involved were the planners involved no the program brief was framed by people who had nothing to do with anything in terms of architecture and design and planning it was based on just functional requirement so then how does the financing work for all these development projects are they interested in putting certain part of the money in replicability sustainability and everything no all these aspects come post financing for <coughs> what i would call the bottom dollar every developer that we work with is looking at what is the time scale on returns because money has a cost in the market so if i borrow 100 rupees today and if i can return it in 3 days it cost me 110 rupees that i'm returning but if i'm returning it in 5 days it becomes 120 rupees money has a cost so financing takes over how we design and how it's implemented time financing controls the time of design so many times when we architects get together in the evening and chat it's always like they're going to do a project which is multi million dollars but the design and planning time is the least important the developer or the client will come and say madam can you actually give us this by end of this month and we might be actually talking on the 14th or 15th of the month 15 days out of which 3 might be weekends even and holidays so 12 days time given for a multi million dollar project because that is the least important part afterwards they have to market it they have to borrow the money they have to look at the financing problem they have to deal with the government they have to deal with the planning authority so the architects are the least important part of a project so design decisions then of course fall to the wayside as an architect on the table when you talk about design decisions based on projected user interface climate building materials carbon footprint and all that it's not actually relevant because the financing and time aspect is what rules the entire design decision so if you don't have much say in design decision where are you going with material and technology how are you going to look at embodied carbon how are you looking at carbon miles how are you looking at green building it's kind of it's delusional on part of most architects to think that these are decisions that are at the root of every process it's not except for a few rare unicorn projects none of the developers and governments actually look at it then finally come to the tendering process i don't know who set it up where the financial bid the lowest financial bid is what gets to implement the project because it's not qualification it's not experience it's not the skill of the uh, contractor or whatever tendering is on financial bid construction process is completely out of the hand of the architect you basically come and say okay are you following my design no we can't because your design is useless and there you are and post occupancy nobody is actually dealing with the people who use the buildings to make sure that they understand all the different processes that have come into play to enable a building to be sustainable so in a way we sit in the middle of these nine squares with the least say and the least influence and yet we are supposed to take responsibility to the final product that comes out no wonder architects are obsessed with how things look 
because at least if it looks okay, it's fine. Whether it works well, whether it functions, whether it will it'll fall apart in five years, at least during the time when it was finished, it looks good. Because we are powerless to influence every other aspect. So now moving on from here, I want to talk about this present. How do we actually move towards the future in a way that we can re-script our role and become relevant to the planning, development, design of spaces built, unbuilt in India. I'm not so concerned about the rest of the world right now because I feel if we can do it at home, we can do it anywhere. So let's start at home. Now, but doing it at home in the present world is not so easy because globalization is a fact of life. And the output of globalization and the impact on the role of the architect and designer in this country is something that we really need to look at. In our studio, we often have interns, not often, always. We always have interns from various schools of architecture around the country. And then we have a lot of young architects who come and work with us for a couple of years before they either go on to doing masters or starting their own practice or actually joining a practice in the city which has a better pay grade than what we offer. And I look at what are their aspirations. I speak with them about what do they think is the actual output of design and what do they read what are they interacting with? What are the imagery that captures their mind? How are they dealing with the world of design? And I realize a lot of them spend an inordinate amount of time only looking at visuals, whether it's on the net, world architecture thing, these architecture thing, domus, this, that, and everything. It's all these architecture um, online media publications are all only dealing with images. So in a way, the entire architecture profession is dependent on good photographers. If you don't get a good photographer, you don't have your next project. And the students of architecture focus on how well a visual imagery has been captured by a skilled photographer at the right time of the day, season, year, and that becomes for them the aspiration level that they have to reach when they do their design as professionals. And then at this point of the conversation, when I ask them about what else, it's very difficult for them to articulate what else because success is being published. Success is imagery. Success is the wow factor. There's what else? And the next question is, what if doesn't even come to the table then? So coming to my next point then, is the framework and content of architectural education acknowledging the changing paradigm of development in this country? Because this whole obsession and love affair with just the formal aspect of architecture and design is actually starting somewhere. Of course, it starts more than just the media pre media on architectural thing. Everything is about consuming. And so it's about presentation, whether it's a toothpaste or whether it's, you know, a dog leash, doesn't matter. But is architectural education acknowledging that our paradigm of development is changing? A country of 1.2 billion people by 2050, we will have almost 35 to 40% of the population in this country living on subsistence level. We'll have more than 50% of the population in urban India living in unorganized or unscheduled shelter, to put it in a polite vocabulary, slums. So no matter how glitzy and beautiful and star-rated and green-rated your building is, it's still a cocoon inside which you can trap a dream, but the 
world outside, the unbuilt spaces that are going to be the experience that we're going to live in when we move from one bubble or cocoon to another bubble or cocoon of design spaces. Nobody is going to care about how your building looks from outside except the photographer who's going to, whose product you're going to publish. So how are we acknowledging this matter when there'll be the environmental conditions of our cities will degrade further? Access to water and sanitation is going to get even more scarce. More and more people are going to be living in inadequate housing. Level of access to education and health will fall further. So that means the people who are going to employ us, our clients, that section is going to get even more narrow than the 0.4% of the population I talked about. But the number of architecture schools came to multiply. And the number of young people who are going to streaming in to join these schools are multiplying. Who are we going to work for? So coming to the last point, responsibility of the right. And this is where I think there's a huge responsibility on a very small group of people. There are few architects in this country who have arrived whose voice is heard in all three sections of society, the political, the public, and the private, who are recognized, who have a say. Will these people get out of their self-insular world and leverage to initiate change? Because let's be frank. Change in India is not going to come from the man on the street. We are not yet so democratically enabled and aware that we actually listen to nobodies. We emulate, imitate, and listen only to the people who are successful. Success can be measured in many ways. But for an architect in this country, success means that you are a celebrity, that the the world of politics listens to you, actually includes you in their group. The world of public, which is whether it's the media or you know the NGOs or different agencies and different groups are constantly bothering you. Come and speak to us. Come and you know be on our forum and others. And the private sector, who engages you, there are very very few of these architects today in this country, and they are safe. They have arrived and they have a voice. But they are so risk averse. They do not stand up and speak for change, which is such a pity. Because if you look at what's happening globally, and I'm only going to take the situation of UK. In 2019, 17 top UK firms, which are listed here on the right-hand side of my screen, they stood up with the architects Tompkins and Michael Pavan, and they made a declaration. They said, okay, climate and biodiversity emergency is there. And we, the most successful firms with the celebrity architects who are heading these firms, we are signing on to say, we will not, no more, it stops here. We are going to work in a way that is not damaging the planet anymore. We are going to look at conservation. We are going to look at retrofitting. We are going to look at waste management. We are going to look at biodiversity. We are going to look at mobility. We are going to actually commit to a different form of development. I have been, and this is, I think, maybe the 12th or 13th forum that I'm talking about this since this May. Uh, 2019 thing happened, saying, is this country ready with our celebrity architects to sign on to create a snowball effect to be influencers in the politics, public, and the private sector to bring about change? Please do not put the load of change on the students and young architects. Can the people who have arrived actually do it? And each forum 
just saying, wow, so Asani, yes, it should be done, it should be done. But I'm just a middle-level architect. I don't have influence. But I keep trying to push the ones who have influence, push agencies to have, who have influence. Can we do something like that? At least can we talk about it? I'm again appealing to this forum and everybody who's listening to it. Please, can we talk about this? Can the architects in this country come together and say, in the foyer of the future, let's come up with a mandate or a protocol or even a kind of a declaration, if we can go that far, that we as architects want to take on and say, this is how we want to work for the future and this is how we set the agenda for the future and this is our concerns. And so please, the people who are making the policies and laws, the people who are actually influencing the development, can you please be supportive and work with us and that we can stand together. This is what I'm most concerned about. Now, it's easy, all this was talk, all this half an hour. So the question then is, anybody can talk, talk is cheap. Are we gonna walk the talk? So the next half of my presentation is about that, to show that yes, I am in my small way, walking the talk. Yeah. So I want to just show you a few of the works that we have done in our studio, which anchors the concerns that I've tabled up to now and explain what we have been trying till now and what we have learned. It was very early in my career. I think I must have been four or five years out of architecture school. I had the opportunity to convince some of the governmental agencies in the country and non-governmental agencies outside the country to come together and allow us to do a public building in earth, which should not be connected to the grid, where the sewage would be recycled and used for irrigation because Oroville is in an area which is water deficit and it's a hot, humid climate. And we did this project. It took us almost two years, two and a half years to convince various agencies to become donors, to set the protocol of how we will work together and make, up, make the design and look at a whole palette of building materials that were non-industrialized with low embodied energy and would have a high recycling and reuse component. And so this project, and I knew nothing about earth construction, fresh out of School of Planning and Architecture, Delhi, where formalism, concrete, and other things were still the concern as they are now, 35 years later, and said, okay, I will learn on the job. I knew nothing about our construction, like I said before. Learned on the job, went to develop an alternatives, talked to people, bought a machine, worked with the machine, and then somebody from Krater, Mr. Sajmani, now called Satprem, joined in, trained us how to do blocks, trained us how to make arches and walls. The, and you can see here on the, uh, the photo on the left-hand side above the building on the top left, top right, the windmills for pumping water, using leftover from granite quarries for landscaping. And so this is what, in a small way, almost 30 years ago, a little more than 30 years ago, I learned on the job. Construction with earth, working with renewable energies, sewage recycling, working with landscaping with indigenous species that are drought resistant. And then we, with each project, we took it one step further. This is a kindergarten that we did a few years afterwards, where not only the building was in earth, but even the foundations were in earth. And the entire building is built with mangalore tile roofs on prefabricated RCC rafters so that we do not use wood and we are actually relevant to an atmosphere where we're going to live with open windows. That means wood borer insects, humidity, temperature changes where wood really suffers. And you re-learning how the IPS floorings, which is the red oxide floorings were made earlier, 100 years ago. What was the technique? Building up the skill, building up a team of craftsmen who can actually 
work with this older techniques with newer materials and make them more relevant to today's needs. And then we went on to do projects which were energy-based, like the solar kitchen, which were again in earth with prefabricated roofing system and the energy to cook for meals for a thousand people at mealtime generated with a solar thermal device, a solar bowl with 11,000 mirrors reflecting the, the rays of the sun onto a boiler arm to convert the water to steam at 700 degrees because the boiler arm gets to be 700 degrees centigrade when it's in the focal point. It generates steam that does the cooking for a thousand people each mealtime with food cooked from local farm, small and medium-sized farmers who are working with organic farming and sustainable farming techniques that we have connected with, with other networks who are trying to get the whole cycle of food, waste and, and energy into one component so that farming becomes more sustainable and actually provides a livelihood for small and medium farmers by you know, collective cooking that supplies food, which today in the pandemic, when I see what's happening in Chennai the last one week, people who live off the streets and people who live off daily wages are unable to feed themselves. And to have these collective kitchens that would be tied up with farms in the countryside in the cities that serves basic food would be a great means to handle hunger in this country and sustainable organic farming. But we are not only dealing with research and demonstration projects where we go out and convince agencies to support us with funding. We also get, very rarely, but we do get private clients. So what you're looking at is a farmhouse outside Delhi where the person said, okay, I want to try to live like this. So it's a farmhouse where there's really farming, growing of vegetables and other things. And we worked here not with earth blocks, but actually low-fired bricks because the bricks in the UP Haryana region outside Delhi are very, very good quality because of the type of soil they have. With exposed bricks and recycled wood from the sleepers of railways. So you can see all the decking and railing, everything is done with recycled wood that the railways auctions off. And then we have also done projects which required concrete. But then we said we will work with concrete in a manner that it is actually very, very efficient because there's no, as yet, unfortunately, in terms of technology, we do not have a replacement for steel and cement because, I mean, it's very nice to say, oh, I don't want to use steel, I don't want to use cement, but steel and cement actually gives you two qualities, which we still do not find in most of the materials. It gives you tensile strength, and it gives you certain resilience in terms of durability to aging. So, but you have to learn to use it in an economical, efficient, and a very sensitive manner. So we have done buildings with exposed concrete, and but we then, combine it with other materials to offset it. The image that you're seeing here right now, there's concrete slab as roofing, exposed concrete walls. These are all form finished concrete. But the walls that you see, these strips of stones, these are actually an industrial waste product from the stone cutting factories. And the flooring is also natural stone unpolished. And the reddish walls are rammed earth walls. So it is like, if I'm going to have to use concrete, I want to use it in the best possible sense with high skill labor, with good quality finishing, so that they are actually durable and they don't need more finishing on it. And to offset the embodied energy of that by the rest of the building being with recycled materials. So in a way, the overall package then makes sense. So it's like you should not make it into a kind of fanatical religion, say, oh, no concrete, no steel. But if you have to use it, be judicious. <coughs> and almost all the furniture, doors, windows of this building are all recycled. And they're recycled because 
Oroville is next to Pondicherry. This, it is a heritage town where there is four different sections of heritage. There's the European part, the French part. Then there's the Muslim part, the Christian part, and the Hindu part. It's a town that has existed for a long time, four or five hundred years. It has slowly been built up. And there are magnificent old houses with wooden pillars, wooden rafters, madras roofs with wooden beams. And given the cost of land, the greed of developers, the need to raise capital, because families, multi-generational families all want to have their own homes. <coughs> so need to raise capital so that they can all have their own apartments. These buildings are being taken down. We actually are in contact with the demolishers and we keep constantly trying to persuade clients and promoters to buy up this wood and we recycle it with trained carpentry units, you know, small groups of four or five carpenters in the local villages who have been trained to evaluate the wood, get it cut, and then based on it, advise architects on the design of doors and windows. So it will become a combination of access to material through the procurer, skilled carpentry, craftsmen and others, and designers working in close network with each other. Just give me a minute. I need a sip of water. This is the public library of Oroville. Again, what we try to do is to work with a building material which is not low embodied energy, which is metal roofs. For very large span structures, which are not intermediate floor, we realize why not go for metal roofs? Roofs that are lightweight and thus have less load on the columns, and that means less foundations. So whatever you save, on foundations and columns and superstructure actually offsets the embodied energy in the metal of the roof. So that's why my um, focus here is to say there's nothing so good that is always good and nothing so bad that is always bad. It is how we use and design and manipulate different aspects of design, both inside, outside, the built, unbuilt, that gives us a product that in its entirety, in a holistic manner, actually makes something sustainable and relevant for the future. So as architects, we have to be more than just designers. We need to know our materials. We need to know biochemistry. We need to be more interested in the material technology and about manufacturing processes, about procurement, the whole life cycle of different things. We need to understand climate. We need to understand the geopolitics of where we are building. We need to know so many things. We don't need to be the master of all these things. But on a conceptual level, our knowledge base needs to widen so much if you want to be relevant and have a say in the future. And this is where I find that the architectural education of this country in response to the challenges which are so wide, almost like in a fear, retreats more and more into a narrow spectrum of treating <coughs> design and planning and architecture as a combination of just building technology, formalization of design, and dealing with decorative arts. And this is a pity because I think most of the students of architecture that I met are bright, are curious, and have a capacity to learn that is not being tapped into. And I think there I really call upon the architects who have arrived to intervene from the basic stage of architectural education right down to the market that we are working with. This is another project, again, to show you. This is in Point Calimere, which is almost near the southernmost strip of India, cyclone prone, very, very poor economically, and socially extremely marginalized communities of fishermen and people who make a living tapping toddy out of Palmyra. So with the World Bank, this is a very small interpretation center that we worked with the local community to put up so that they can tell their story to the tourists. And amazingly, like the Dundee March that Gandhi made 
in Gujarat against the salt tax, protested against salt tax. This is another place, simultaneously, there was another march protesting against salt tax. It's not as well known as the one that happened in Dundee, but this is the commemorative point of the southern, southern protest. So between the fishermen, the very uh, well-organized communities of political protest that happen here, plus the tribals who work with the plants and the other things. So it is an ex open exhibition center that we made <coughs> that where the wall panels, these white wall panels that you see, were painted over by the local people to say their stories, like a visual representation of the history of their culture and their land and their livelihood. And it's an um, interesting point because a lot of um, school children and tourists come here because of the natural landscape. So they also get to know about the human landscape of this place. This is the last project that I will share with you. It's a housing project that we are still working on over the last three, four years we've been developing. Now, the interesting thing about this project is not that it is a housing project, but actually it is for me, it has been and will be a vehicle to bring about an administrative change in this country. As many of you may be aware, we have a national building code. Now, unfortunately, this national building code, by the very title, says national. That means it's one code for the entire nation. Now, any Indian will tell you, no two point in India is similar. We have similar concerns, but we do not have similar challenges. Which means that, why is it then architecture has one code for the entire country? Shouldn't we have codes that respond to the regional challenges? Now, this is a dialogue that I started having with the government sometime in 2011-12. Took several years of dialogues to get enough of an audience. And by 2014, we had audience in several ministries in Delhi to say, okay, why don't we identify six points in this country with six well-experienced and concerned groups of architects to take up projects that are financed by the government, uncontrolled situation, to test out climate, building sciences, skill development, and post-occupancy lifestyle questions to see how we can change our national building code into regional building codes. <coughs> Unfortunately, of course, there was general election, the we had a whole change of philosophy in the central government and even a change of system. So we are now limping along trying to reestablish a new, new network. This cycles in government takes decades, okay? But one has to keep at it. So we built the first cluster where we worked with building materials like recycled industrial waste products, Old earth concrete, which is actually using construction and demolition waste mixed in with earth and poured into shuttering. So these are the kind of walls you get. This is not rammed earth. This is not bricks made of earth. This is actually earth mixed in a concrete mixer with construction and demolition waste and then poured into shuttering. The lines you see are the shuttering um, planks. And you just pour the earth into it uh, like you do with concrete and the walls are made of it. So you can actually transform a lot of construction and demolition waste, which is one of the biggest waste generated in urban India today. And it's being dumped in low-lying areas and water channels causing flooding every time we have a monsoon. But even worse than that, actually impeding the water to collect in areas where they used to recharge our rivers and our groundwater system. So not only people are getting flooded, this damage to people and property, but we are re re uh, actually not replenishing our water cycle. So recycling of construction demolition waste is a very, 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 very extremely important aspect that we have to look at in this country. And this is the kind of settlement that we have done. We are, you know, zero positive, the solar panels produce more energy than what is being used by the people. We did, after the, uh, the first cluster was over, and people started occupying these units, 
after four or five months of occupancy, we started doing a monitoring that went over three, 13 months. We monitored how much water they're using, how much sewage is being produced, what is the kind of solid waste that they're producing, like packaging and food and other things, and how, how we're recycling it, or how is it being dealt with. But over and above all that, we had sensors put to monitor the indoor-outdoor temperature, humidity level, flow of air, heat island effect, and then compare it to the weather conditions of the season <clears throat> to establish what is the comfort level that we can uh, achieve because of design. The entire water cycle has been taken into account besides conservation of water with low flow taps and other things. But the building design itself is done in such a way that you need less water for cleaning, internal cleaning and sanitation. All the roof water is collected into these stepped courtyards, which have an overflow with the surface water, which is collected in swales. And now we're working with the next phase of the project, where these swales will be linked with shallow wells to produce portable water so that at least 40% of the portable water needs of this cluster of people, which is about 60, 70 people right now, will be from the rainwater itself directly. And this way that we slowly over time, because it's not easy to uh, reverse water cycles, or slowly over time, make the water cycle between what is dropping on our heads and what we use shorter and shorter. Thank you. This is what my presentation is about. <coughs> I think these were very relevant uh, questions that you asked in your talk. Uh, I have one question for you. Uh, you spoke mm -hmm. about the role of an architect, which is already very small in this whole process of, uh, you know, leading eventually to marketing. So I wanted to ask, what can be the smallest change an architect may do or start with while practicing at their level? It's, um, you see, what can you do? The first thing that I really would like most architects to do is to widen what they look at. Because, you know, like I said, architecture needs patrons. We are somehow kind of squeezed between what we are asked to design for. Like Gauri tomorrow, a family comes to you and say, oh, we are a family of four or five. My mother lives with me. My grandfather is going to live with me. I need three BHK for the family plus one guest bedroom. And I want this, I want that. What is it that you can do? What can you do? You have to provide them within their budget, their functional requirement. But what you can also do is actually, if you are able to learn on the job and also take pleasure in learning. Start to understand what kind of social setup that they come from. What are their cultural concerns? Who are they building for? Because when you have a client like that coming with the four or five member family, they are building for their functional needs, but they're also building to create an image in the society that they live in. That the people who will look at the house from outside, people who will visit them, the functions and the family events that happen, they're all audiences to whatever this person has asked you to build. So they try to put things into the functional requirement that they give to an architect, elements of space need, but also intangible elements of how a building will be perceived by the onlooker, which says a lot about them. Their status in society and what, are, what is it that they want others to think about them, how they're perceived. Now, if you are even slightly interested in the sociocultural aspects of the public that you're working with, you will be able to start communicating with them. Instead of just being a service provider, you actually partner with them and start understanding who are they designing what for? Why is the marble floor so interesting? For them instead of saying why is a marble floor so important for them the marble floor is interesting for them because it says something about them what is it saying about them are you interested in their story 
If you're interested in their story, you can actually start influencing not only how they want to house themselves, but influence how they want to see themselves and thus how they want others to see them. And so an architect is much more than a designer. An architect is an influencer on a social, cultural, political, technological and environmental level. So please educate yourself on all these levels so that every opportunity becomes evident. Every challenge is an opportunity to go beyond just drawings and buildings. It's actually influencing decision making. Every decision that you influence allows you to make a change in design. And you can't influence decision without information. And you cannot give them information if you don't know yourself, right? Yeah. So that's why I say education, architectural education has to change. And for that to change, top architects in this country need to talk about change. You can't change it, I can't change it, but we can support the change. Okay. I think that's okay. uh, really beautifully answered. And uh, I have another question for you from the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, they asked, what are your views on biophilic design? Biophilic design? Yes. Okay. The word biophilia, I think it was coined by E.O. Wilson, Edward Wilson, who is an entomologist. And he also worked a lot with sociobiology. Now, this word has become a jargon. Most people have not um, actually looked at what biophilia means and what is consilience that comes out of biophilia. And I can go on and lecture one and a half hours on it because E.O. Wilson is one of my, how do you say, heroes. It's one of the people that I read. He's an entomologist and biologist, evolutionary biologist, and I... I'm very interested in life of insects, and especially social insects like bees and ants and termites and others. So I spend a lot of time. So when he talks about biophilia, he's talking about a biological imperative that exists within us, which means that human beings as homo sapiens sapiens, as a species, subspecies, have existed almost two and a half million years. We have fossil records, we have DNA that can do mal what you call molecular testing of our cellular biology to know where we come from, how we are spread, and how we have populated this planet. Out of the two and a half million years, the last 10,000 is when we started to have agriculture. And the first step of agriculture was what? is actually destruction of biodiversity for monoculture. That means a field of weeds is taken out and one kind of weed, which is rice or wheat, is planted. And out of this 10,000 years, the last four to 5,000 years is where we had settlements, whether it's Mesopotamia, Indus Valley or water, urbanization. And it's the last 400 years with the Industrial Revolution that we are tapping into fossil fuel, coal and petroleum, to actually have mechanization that makes our life very different. 100 years ago, people took two to three days to travel from Pondicherry to Chennai. 50 years ago, they were taking half a day. Today, I take three hours, all because of fossil fuel. So we assume Whatever happened in the last 50 years, which is our lifetime, which is what our brain can be, is what life is about. But within us, our biology, within our cells, there's a message that is much longer that we're born with, which actually requires nature for our biological well-being. Like if I would shut you in a room, Gauri, for 10 days, where you cannot know whether it's night or day, whether it's hot or cold, and then let you out, your biological clock will be so skewed that your digestion, your nervous health, your skin condition, your breathing, 
your immune system, everything will be destroyed because all that that we talk about human beings is actually that. And by being in buildings that cancel out the experience of nature, and that's when I say when we work with adaptive comfort and not the Ishra standards, you know it's summer outside because it's 38 degrees with 70% humidity, but inside you're only 34 degrees with 50% humidity. It's not the comfort of air-conditioned space, but your body knows it's summer. So it slows the metabolism down so that it doesn't overheat and does not tax the immune system. So you don't get that sick. As if I sit in artificial lighting at 24 degrees centigrade with 40% humidity, it's very comfortable. But the minute I step outside, wham! Biophilia is actually working, designing, and addressing on a biological level the holistic needs of human beings within the context of the environment that they have evolved, living, and developed in. That's all it is. So it's just people throw random terms without actually reading it up. But it gave me a, a place to explain this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. It was lovely having you here. Okay then. <coughs> Sorry. So it was a great session uh, by architect Suhasini, and we got a whole new other perspective after listening to this session. There will be a break till 2 p.m. now, and there will be a panel discussion on urban architecture immediately after the break. And there would be a workshop which will commence at 4.30. Do not forget to tune in. Keep safe and stay indoors.